Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is the Italian American Podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping Italian Americans learn about their heritage. And of course, we do that by speaking to Italian Americans of all different age ranges, professions, and locations, which is why we love doing this show because we get to talk to passionate Italian Americans and bring them to you. So before we get into this episode, I just want to mention that my co-host Dolores Alfieri has been away for a few episodes. Dolores has been pretty busy with some work projects, but also the most important project is planning her own wedding, which is exciting. And it's a lot to do for her in a short period of time. But she misses being on the show and we miss her. We miss her personality and her, of course, famous or infamous laugh at this point that so many of the listeners talk about. But Dolores will be back soon. I promise you that. And you'll hear her soon enough. So for today's episode... I have two great guests. Firstly, I speak with Helene Stapinski, author of the wonderful book, Murder in Matera, a true story of passion, family, and forgiveness in Southern Italy. This is a book that so many of our listeners have told me, you have to read this book. You have to interview the author. The book has gotten a lot of traction. It's done very well. And it's an amazing true story about her research into a story about a family murder back in Italy. And so she traced it all the way back. She spent 10 years researching it. She went to Italy several times. The book has so many twists and turns. It's just such an amazing book. And she's going to talk a little bit about the book, but also about family history research and just some other really interesting things about our ancestors and where they came from. Also, in the story segment of the episode today, I speak with Danielle Oteri from Feast on History, where she hosts Arthur Avenue food tours. And she's actually going to be hosting one for our listeners. It'll be on December 9th. Dolores and I will be there. It will be focused on Seven Fishes meal, the Christmas Eve meal. I'm really excited about it. There's about a dozen spots left for the tour. So you could check it out at italianamericanexperience.com forward slash Arthur Avenue, all lowercase, no spaces, or just go to italianamericanexperience.com and click on events and you'll see it there under December 9th. And in this episode, Danielle talks a little bit about Arthur Avenue and the history of it. I think it was her great grandfather had a fish store there. And so it's interesting just to hear about it. If you haven't been there, you've got to get there. It's really amazing. And of course, I'm speaking of Arthur Avenue in the Bronx. Also, I want to thank all of you that entered our Italian-American recipe contest. We teamed up with Botticelli Foods and Cooking with Nona to do this contest and we're going to select the winners and we will be recording an episode with them while they're cooking their recipes if they're available to come or else we'll be cooking them and uh, that's going to make for a pretty awesome holiday episode. So thanks again for that. All right. So before we introduce our main guests for the episode, I'd like to offer a brief word from our sponsor, the National Italian American Foundation. I'm John Viola. President of the National Italian American Foundation, proud supporters of the Italian American podcast. At NEF, we see ourselves as the leaders of the Italian American community 
and we work hard to protect our great heritage, to promote the Italian language, to build stronger ties between Italy and the United States, and to serve as your voice in our nation's capital. Most importantly, with over a million dollars a year in scholarships and grants, our work provides young Italian-Americans help in earning a solid education and becoming future leaders for our community. To find out more about how your support serves the community, visit us online at www.niaf.org and become a part of the NIAF family. Now I'd like to introduce our guest for today's episode. Helene Stepinski began her career at her hometown newspaper, The Jersey Journal. She is the author of three memoirs, Five Finger Discount, Baby Plays Around, and Murder in Matera, a true story of passion, family, and forgiveness in Southern Italy. Helene has also written extensively for the New York Times for Travel and Leisure, Food and Wine, Salon, Real Simple, New York Magazine, and dozens of other newspapers, magazines, and blogs. She's been featured on NPR's All Things Considered, The Today Show, and as a performer with The Moth Main Stage. So what I'd like to do to bring you into this interview with Helene is just to read a very short excerpt from the book, Murder in Matera. Vita had the same crooked smile I had and that many of the women in my family had, what we called our Mona Lisa smile, a hesitant smirk that didn't give much away. You didn't get the full on smile until we knew you better. And then we would bend over backwards for you, cook you elaborate meals and do anything you asked. Well, almost anything. All right, now I'd like to welcome Helene Stepinski to the Italian American podcast. She is the author of Murder in Matera, the true story of passion, family, and forgiveness in Southern Italy. Helene, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I have been told by about a million people that I needed to interview you for the podcast. <laughs> a million? Really? <laughs> really a million. Every time I go, did you read that book? Did you read Murder in Matera? I said, I haven't yet, but I said, every time someone talks to me, I have to read it. So then... When I marched in the Columbus Day Parade with the Italian-American authors, obviously you were there. We met very briefly, but I went into the bookstore and like the first book I see is your book. And I'm like, you know what? That's it. I'm getting this book. I'm reading this book. I'm contacting Helene. And I did. And it was really, really an awesome book. And it's an amazing story. And for those of you that don't know the story, you know what, Helene, before we get into the book, just talk about growing up Italian-American, because that's usually where we like to start with our guests. Tell us a little bit about your background and growing up as an Italian-American. Sure. I grew up in Jersey City, New Jersey. My mom is Italian. My father was Polish. So we're really Italian because <laughs> I got an, I got a Polish name, but I'm Italian. I look Italian. I eat Italian. I sound Italian. When your mother is Italian, you're pretty much guaranteed to be Italian. So yeah, my mother was a great cook. She cooked meatballs, which I have the recipe to now, you know, lasagna, the whole nine yards. She was an Italian mom, very overprotective, loved to tell stories, loved to sing. We all had musical instruments in our lives. You know, we all had to take lessons because everybody was so musical. Just a big, warm Italian family. My cousins were always over. I was always over at my cousin's house. It was a typical Italian-American upbringing, basically. And my mother always told me these stories. You know, my mother's a great storyteller and she was born in a different generation. She, or was a man, she would have been a writer herself. She finished high school, never went to college. Her father was not a great guy. She had to help support the family. So all her stories basically got passed on to me. And I was the youngest in the family and I was with her a lot. My sister and brother were a lot older and we'd go everywhere together, me and my mom. And so I heard these stories 
over and over and over and over again. And they just kind of wedged themselves into my brain, I think. And once I became a writer, these stories started to bubble up. And so one of the stories was the story that takes place in Murder Matera about my great, great grandmother. Right. And I hear you. Believe me, my grandmother has told me some of the same stories about a hundred times. I've told them on the podcast, there's one story that she tells about her father who immigrated here. He had no job six kids. And his friend wrote a letter to Mayor LaGuardia because he couldn't speak English. And sure enough, the night before Thanksgiving, the mayor sent a bunch of people to their house with food and a job for my great grandfather. And it's a great story. But now, like whenever I say that story from my family, it's like, I've heard that story like a hundred times. <laughs> like, right. I know. Exactly. Grandma my keeps kids, telling it. She my keeps kids telling are like, I don't want to hear any more yeah. stories. Yeah. So is just kind of setting the scene for her book, which is and then the beginning of the book, and I guess the basis for the book is one of the stories that your mother told you, right, over and over again. Exactly. Yeah. The book basically opens with my mother telling me the story. She's cooking meatballs you know, on the stove, and she's telling me the story for the 97th time, even though I'm just five years old, six years old. So, yeah, it's basically a story about my great-great-grandmother who fled to America in 1892 with her kids. The story goes in my family that there were originally three kids that came over, but they lost one on the way over, whatever that means, right? Two sons arrived with her. They were teenagers, and they both became barbers, successful barbers in Jersey City. And yeah, that was pretty much it. I didn't really have much else to go on. That My great-great-grandmother was involved in this murder with her husband, Francesco Venna, his name was, and that he stayed behind, but she came. And that's really all I had to go on. That's all you had to go on. And what was it that one day made you say, I need to figure this out? Well, my first book had come out. It was called Five Finger Discount, A Crooked Family History. And it was about all the criminals in my family in New Jersey. Now, this has nothing to do with the mafia, not even just the Italian side. This was all sides of the family, my Polish side, the Russian side, the Italian side. Jersey City was a very corrupt place or still is a very corrupt place in many ways. And there were a lot of criminals in my family. My grandfather was a murderer. I had a bookie uncle. I had a fixer, Aunt Katie, who would like do stuff for you. <laughs> she was a fixer. Anyway, I had a mob consigliere cousin who was sort of related to the mob, but not really in the mob. He was a lawyer for them. I actually covered a mob trial in my first job as a reporter, and my cousin came up on the mafia tapes. I was like, oh, man, now what do I do? Do I tell my mother or do I tell the editor, you know? So that's when I fled. I actually moved to Alaska. But anyway, that's a whole other story. It's another book. <laughs> yeah, another book. So anyway, I had written this big book about my family here. And one of the few stories that I didn't unravel or research was the story about Vita because it was in Southern Italy. I couldn't find anything out about it here. All the research that I had done for Five Finger Discount was in America and fairly easy to research. You know, you go to the library, you go to the newspaper, you go to the criminal files, you get it. You're in America. It's open. There it is. I had no idea going into this other story about Vita going to Southern Italy was going to be so difficult, but it took me 10 years to dig the story up. And so, yeah, it was just that one nugget, that one story that I had never discovered. And I just wanted to find it. Yeah. No, that's amazing. Before we go further, just so everyone knows, don't worry, we're not going to give away the good juicy stuff in the book <laughs> because I want you to read it. But would you say this is a novel or a memoir or a mix? How would you classify this book? It's mostly nonfiction. It's a memoir in general. That's how, we're, that's how it's being marketed as a memoir. But the scenes where I go back in time and tell Vita's story, 
it was just slightly fictionalized because right you didn't have the information yeah yeah but i did a lot of research like a, a lot of historical research so those settings that i'm setting up for you are real those places are real the people who were there were real the dialogue maybe not so real so i had to kind of fill some blanks but it's all from research it's not just off the top of my head. Right. I mean, so. the main fundamental parts are the dates and all that stuff. You mentioned that in the book, how you found them and stuff, which is cool. I mean, the interesting thing about the book, honestly, is as obviously myself as an author and I read a lot, is it really is like, I feel like when you're reading it, it's a novel, it's historical fiction, it's a memoir. It's got all these things from different types of books kind of rolled mm-hmm. into one, which makes it interesting because those are like all the books that I really enjoy reading. But what I took away from this too, is that we preach on the podcast a lot about deepening your heritage, understanding where you came from. And... I learned a lot about Southern Italy and the way that it works right. and the way that the land worked and the farmers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, I had farmers in my family. They still have a farm there an hour away from Naples. So it's kind of Helene's story, which is very interesting, the story and the twists and turns in it. But it's really, in many cases, a lot of Italian Americans family stories, right? Because a lot of right. them came from these areas with the farms and the padrone and all yeah, these. Nobody knows that stuff. I didn't know it. I thought I knew about Southern Italy and I didn't know anything, really. Once I started researching this book, I was in shock at the things that I came across. There's this thing called Prima Note, which is this tradition. This, this, was, you, this you, was insane. I, I couldn't even. Yeah, I, I was blown away. Anyway, when I was there, I talked to this historian and he told me that there was this rite of Prima Note, which is a tradition where the. the I still get upset when I think about it. The landlord or the padrone would have the right to sleep with the virgin wife of his farmers. So he would have the pick of who he wanted. He could sleep with all of them if he wanted, I guess, or, you know, he would pick the one he liked the best. And on their wedding night, she was expected to go off with this guy who wasn't her husband. And it's really like a slave situation. It was like a slave owner situation where these women were generally just raped. And there was nothing people could do about it because everybody was really poor. You know, you're talking barely eating. They're like close to starvation, this disease everywhere. And you had to work for the Padrona. You had no choice. These people didn't own the land. It was a feudal farming system up until fairly recently, until past the turn of the century, until people started to leave and go to America. And that's when everything shifted because the labor pool was decreased. And so the workers had more rights, really, and they were paid more and everything started to change. And of course, they got guns. So <laughs> typical people had guns then. And you're not going to let this guy sleep with your wife. <laughs> you got a gun, no. you know? So it all sort of shifted around the turn of the century, a little after maybe 20s, 30s. Yeah. And I think that what's interesting also in the book is that there's two storylines that are prevalent is the obviously the murder that you're researching but the other storyline that you can't get around thinking about it is like you. I'm trying to think to myself, I mean, first of all, there are parts of Southern Italy that are very scary. Yeah, it's, 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 pretty a, rough place. it's a scary yeah. place. And Helene took several trips there over several years to write this book and do the research for the book, which makes sense because it was a tremendous amount of research that had to be done. But I mean, you went with your family, but you also went on your own. I mostly went on my own. It was a mistake to take my family because, well, it was actually the second time I went. I took my kids and my mother and I thought it would be fun and we'd have a good time. But it was nearly impossible to get anything done with the kids there. They were little. They were like four and one. I was like, what have I done? This was a terrible mistake. So I had to kind of wait for them to grow up a little bit so I could leave them. Being an Italian mother, I can't leave my kids <laughs> just the drop of a hat. You know, I had to wait till they were old enough to leave them. So that's when I went back again and again. And that's when I found the story. So... 
Uh, yeah, but it's, it is my story, and it sort of it alternates chapters, basically, not strictly one-to-one, but you'll be with me, I take you there, I'm looking for some information, and then when I find the information, for instance, Vita's birth certificate, I then, the next chapter, take you back to 1851 and her being born. So that, what was that like? What did that look like? So I'm giving you a snapshot of that, or a little, a little movie, maybe. Yeah, so it sort of alternates. So you do that, you do the wedding, you do different things in her life, and then eventually the murder, bam, happens in the middle of the book. And then after that, all these other things happen, which I never even knew about. It was like all these twists and turns that I sort of just kept stumbling upon. And that's what sort of is the surprise of the book, not so much just the murder, what happened, but all these other things. Yeah. And I think too, and again, I'm not going to give away the details, but the bottom line is, is that Helene uncovers a lot of stuff and not all that stuff is good stuff. And so what I kept thinking about Helene is like your psyche being in Southern Italy by yourself, uncovering these things and then going back to an apartment. I don't know. I was just like, for me, that kept coming up. This would be really, really, I mean, it's all nice and now to read the book and be like, oh, this is great. She did all this research and all that, but I'm trying to put myself in your shoes. And I'm like, man, I don't know how I would be able to, some nights to even have gotten through that. Yeah, no, I could, there were nights I couldn't sleep. And I talk about that in one of the chapters. There's a crib, it turns out, in the apartment that I'm renting. And I find these birth certificates for some dead babies in the family. And I was so scared. I mean, <laughs> you know, as a kid, I used to be really frightened of things like ghosts and things. I thought I was kind of past that as an adult. But being in that little apartment in the middle of Italy, completely by myself, in this room with this crib, and having just found these birth certificates of these dead babies, I was a wreck. I got to tell you, I couldn't sleep. And I was emotion- an emotional wreck a lot of that trip because it was all these ups and downs. You know, I would find something. And I would just burst into tears. It was like, I was really, in a way, couldn't wait to get back home to my family because I needed some comforting. Because it, it was very stressful. And just trying to find it is stressful enough. But then actually finding it is even more stressful. I hadn't really thought that through. Like, what's going to happen when I find this? Because I didn't even know I'd find it. And then what comes after that, like you said, then there's a whole other part of the book after that. It keeps opening other doors. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, I think for Italian Americans in general, at least for myself, when you go away from your family and to begin with, it's stressful because of the way we're brought up. I mean, I studied abroad in Brussels for six months when I was in college and I was like, I got to go home. I mean, it was great. I got to go to Italy. I got to do cool stuff. But I think because of the way that we're brought up with the dinners together and all this stuff, you become so close that it makes trips like that even more difficult. But there's also that pull there of you're an artist, you want to uncover your family. So you want to go, you got your family. So, which again, just again, added to the book. I mean, it added to what made the book interesting for those people that aren't aware. Matera is all the way South, right? Kind of in the, it's basically on the arch of the boot, more like the ankle. Matera is a little inland. So my family's from a village that's closer to the water. It's Bernalda. It's also where Francis Ford Coppola's family is from. But Matera is a little bit North of that. So it's sort of like maybe the ankle bone of Italy. When was the last time you were there? I actually just came back. I was there in late September, early October. I went on a victory lap, you know, to visit all my friends there and all the people who helped me. And when you talk about leaving your family, those people actually helped make it a little easier for me because over that time, those 10 years, I got to know a bunch of people and they were sort of my pretend family. You know, they were there for me. And the people in Bernalda are great people. They're just really welcoming. They bring you into their homes and they feed you and they want you to stay with them. And so I did have a big support system there, I have to say. But the people who are actually related to me were not so supportive. (laughs) 
I think there was this one woman who I'm pretty sure was related to me, who I refer to in the book as Miserabola. And she was just this miserable woman who wouldn't tell me anything. And I know she knew the story. And she screamed at me in the street, told me to go back to America. So I think those people were actually my relatives, you know, and it makes sense because my Italian side of my family, there's a lot of troublemakers. So it's sort of carried over. Yeah. Well, again, it's kind of like if you think about it, you're trying to uncover, you know, you're trying to find information out about this murder because for you, it's your family, it's your family history. So for you, it's like an interesting thing to find out about. And the people there that know about it are like... They're, they're living here. with it. Yeah, they're living with it on a day-to-day basis. Right. You know what I mean? They're still trying to get over the stigma of this thing, which didn't really occur to me until later. I'm there like a reporter saying, this is what I want. Give me what I want. This is my story. Give it to me. And I hadn't really thought it through, but these people have been living on the same street their families for centuries. We're talking centuries. And so any stigma from a murder or from being you know, a loose woman or whatever you want to call it, carries over. And of course, they don't want to talk about it. And I was like, what an idiot I was. I wasn't really thinking it through. You know, I should have been more sensitive to it. But I addressed that in the book as well. Yeah. Well, plus you're also the other thing that I was kept thinking about being that I've done some family research and went to Italy and tried to learn Italian the best I could is that you're trying to communicate in whatever, you know, your Italian wasn't, it was the, probably their dialect and you weren't perfect at that for sure. So in the book, it's kind of like, okay, I see what you're trying to explain to them. But then I'm thinking to myself, wait a second, but she doesn't really speak Italian or at least their dialect that good. So these are complex things that you're trying to talk about. There's no subtlety. Yeah. It, there was no like, subtle way around anything because I could barely speak it. Yeah, exactly. I only knew proper Italian. You know, I took Italian lessons and had my teacher yelling at me that I was pronouncing things wrong. But in my family, you say So yeah, I was trying to make it sound more dialecty, but I could barely understand what a lot of people were saying to me. I mean, it was really difficult. Yeah, I hear you. And that's also, I think Helene did a great job in this book of she did have a lot of people helping her and those became really main characters in the story. And Helene really described them very vividly and they were very important to what she did. They were really helpful for her because when you are in Southern Italy by yourself, you need that help. And I tell you, one of the things that you did, Helene, maybe we could just talk about for a minute, I think could be of a lot of value to the listeners is you had, I think, hired or some people in Italy before you went to help you with the re- like the family research, Right. right? Yeah, that wasn't until later, though. I tried to do it myself. And like we said, it was a bad idea. I could barely speak the dialect. I guess I had gone three times, still hadn't found anything. And before I went on that fourth trip, which was a couple of years ago, I talked to my husband. I was like, you know, I got to hire some researchers. I, I can't do this cold. I can't do it again. I need someone to help me. So I set out this wide net to all the people I knew there. Okay. I was going to ask you how you did it. Yeah. People who I knew here as well. And I said, I'm going back to Italy to do research on this book. If you know anyone in Basilicata who can help me do research, let me know. And so I got this flood, you know, of names from people. And so then it was a matter of like Skyping with all these different people and meeting them basically and deciding who I was going to hire. And it turns out two of the people were just really terrific. One was a woman, a young woman, and one was an older guy around my age who owned a farm. Really smart guy, Giuseppe. He's one of the main characters, as is Ima, who was the young woman. 
And I love them both so much. I said, I have to hire them both. <laughs> so I had, one was like from Pastici and one was from Bernalda. And those are the two towns that I was researching in. So I figured, well, let me hire them both. And it was a great idea that I did because Giuseppe's harvest was coming in. He had to go deal with the apricots, you know, so then I had Ema. And Ema was much more like hands-on researcher. She would like dig into the files. She was more like a she had just finished graduate school, so she was used to doing stuff like that, whereas Giuseppe was much more gregarious, and he spoke dialect. And we would go interview people, and he was very, very charming, and he would help me with the people on the street and stuff like that. So it was two very different approaches to everything, and that's how I got what I got. They were fantastic. I, mean, I tell you, in reading the book and thinking about everything that you did over the 10-year stretch, to me, it seems like that was probably one of the best moves, you know, as far as being able to find all the information was bringing those two people on. Because like you said, they were main characters. They became main characters because they were so integral to the search that you were going through, which was like obviously the mission of the book. And it just seemed like what a difference with their help, you know, and without it. Yeah. Absolutely. No, I, I don't think I would have found it without them, to be honest. One of the guys who we had met through the process was a lawyer, and he actually was friends with Ema. I actually found Ema through him. And he's a guy who owns a hotel in Bernalda. And he went with Ema one day when I was there. It was just my fourth day there. And this guy, Francesco, went with Ema to the archives in Matera. And he found the murder. He found the listing for it. He didn't find the actual file. Like I went back the next day and found the actual file, but he found a listing for it. And he looked 20 years earlier, or I guess maybe he went even back even further. I don't know. I was looking around 1892, which was when Vita came. I just assumed that was when she came, but maybe his lawyerly mind, I don't know. He went back and he found it 20 years earlier, the murder, 1872. And so without him and without Ema, you know, and that whole crew, I'd probably still be looking and <laughs> the book wouldn't be out. Yeah. So what advice would you have for people that want to go back to their ancestral villages and do some research on their family, like in Southern Italy? I mean, the big picture things that you might recommend to them before they go. I think you got to do something before you go. Yeah, you should try and do as much research as you can here. But unfortunately, a lot of stuff is just not available. If you go back before the turn of the century, there's really not much you can do from here. You probably want to talk to all the old people in your family here and gather as much information as you can, as many names as you can, as many dates as you can, when people were born, where they were born, if you can find out. Again, I didn't know any of this, but and then when you go there, you're a little more prepared. You should probably take some Italian lessons <laughs> and just be open to things. I think that's the most important thing. Just be open to people and don't be so stubborn like I was. You know, I just sort of went in there with a hard head and I uh, just wanted that information. I am. I couldn't help it. But just be open to people and sort of bring presents. If you're from New York, bring some I Love New York t-shirts, some hats, you know, NYPD hats. Grease in the skids doesn't hurt. You know, they have something in Southern Italy called raccomandazione. Have you ever heard of that? No. It's sort of like this. Um, it's not even illegal. It's just part of the social system. It's basically bribery. Raccomandazione. So if you want a job, you got to kind of be nice to the guy who's offering the job. You know what I mean? You kind of, it's how, I guess, bribery came to America from the old world, not just Italy, but I'm sure from Ireland and all the other places. But there's this idea of, you know, you kind of have to, it's like bringing something for dinner when you go to somebody's house. You don't want to go empty handed, right? So when you go into Southern Italy, bring some presents for people and be open to people and you'll find what you're looking for in time. It may take a few visits, though. Yeah, that's for sure. 
The other thing that I found to be interesting, or at least was interesting for me is, I mean, I love reading books. I love holding books and reading them. But in your case, I actually got the audio book because I wanted to read it quick so I could talk to you. But what was cool about it was that it was you did the audio book yourself. So it was kind of cool because, I mean, this is obviously a book that's really Helene's story. It's her family. It's her research. She did this stuff. It's mostly nonfiction with the exception of some of the stories that she put into it. And so hearing you, I think, do it was really cool because it was like, this is her. Like, she's doing it. She's going. I insisted. The publisher wanted an actress to do it. And they had given me several recordings of these actresses, not doing my book, but doing other books. And I listened to them and I was like, no way. No, no, I'm doing it. You know, I was like somebody with practically an English accent reading my story. I was like, this is not happening. This is my story. I'm going to tell my story. And so I really pushed for it. And they gave in pretty easily. But they also said, you know, it's really difficult to read your book. They have actresses do it because... They do it, you know, they do it for a living and it's not easy. And so I went to the recording studio to do it. And the guy who was the sound engineer sat me down. He said, this is really difficult. I just want to get you ready. And I said, um, so what time are we breaking for lunch? Because I want to meet a friend for lunch. He said, no, 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 you can't go to lunch because you might run away. Like they, <laughs> they had authors who leave and don't come back. Like, they just don't want to do it. It's so difficult. Yeah, and it is. It's a really hard job. It's like I, it took a week. And at the end of it, towards the end of the book where I'm in Naples and I'm talking about Vita leaving, which is a, this very emotional scene, I just completely broke down and burst into tears. When you were doing the recording? I was doing the recording, yeah. And we had to stop and I had to take a long break because it wasn't just the scene, which is always one of those scenes that gets me when I read it over. But it was also the fact that the book was done and it was going to be out in the world. And I just like had this incredible relief and sort of just emotional reaction. And I just burst into tears. And so we had to take like a 10 minute break <laughs> and then I recovered and finished it. Well, you know what? Honestly, case in point, that's the reason that this is a good book for you to be doing because it's such an emotional, personal story. And I'm doing mine now too. The listeners of the podcast keep asking me to do the audiobook for my 40 days in Italy. And I was like the same thing as you. I'm like, listen, this is my story about going back, finding my family. It's part like memoir. And it's like, I don't know, I feel weird if it wasn't me. I know. I did too. I felt like a, it's like an imposter yeah. doing it. Like why would someone else read it? It's my story. So fast forward now. So you uncovered all this stuff and there was a lot of twists and turns in the story. And, and like you said, even after you found the file that you referenced before, there was still a lot of stuff in the book that happened and a lot of more picture painting that you did for your family. First of all, how has it been since the book came out? Uh, it's a great sense of relief that it's done. I mean, it took such a long time. It's really been a 12-year process. The research took 10 years, but it took a couple years to write it. And it's just kind of nice that it's out in the world. You know, it's just this great feeling. And also, I just feel like I've kind of resurrected this person, Vita, who is this important, really important person in all our families and my family, because she's the one who came over. You know, and if she hadn't, we wouldn't be here right now. And then the other thing that sort of dovetailed, and I hadn't seen this one coming, but with the election, the whole immigration issue came to the forefront again. And I hadn't even considered that when I was writing the book. That wasn't a thought in my mind. I didn't think that would be an issue when the book came out. And so just as it was coming out, you know, all this stuff was happening where, you know, they're stopping people from coming to America, Mexicans, Syrians. And my whole argument is your Italian-American family was treated like dirt at the turn of the century, just like Mexicans and Syrians are now. And if you had somebody in office who was stopping people from coming over, you would not be here right now. Your family would not have been allowed over. 
Um, I wrote a piece about it for the Times. I wrote an op-ed piece about it. it. Made a lot of a big splash, you know, both good and bad. You know, I got all kinds of reactions from people. But that whole immigrant experience is so crucial to the Italian American experience. Nine million people came over. Nine million. That's a lot of people. Okay, and they helped make this country what it was. And that's what this country is. It's this revolving door of cultures that keep coming through. And they're not all terrorists and they're not all criminals. And that was kind of a big thing that happened post-publication. That's interesting. Now, in the book, you mentioned it several times that there was like this internal push that you had to uncover, like you wanted to do this, right? Which kept taking you back, even at the expense of leaving your family and whatnot. It was just obviously was strong. And you said that there's a relief. So does that mean now that you're feeling like, okay, I'm good now. I'm like, I got what I need and I'm done. Or is you still do other things? Yeah, (laughs) there's still a couple of little things in there that I didn't completely solve, but I kind of had to throw in the towel, you know, who knows, maybe I'll go back again and do some more research. But the big question was, well, I mean, I don't want to give it away, but... (laughs) Yeah, don't don't give it away. I can't say. I can't say. But there's definitely one little thing in there. And if you read the book, you'll see what it is, the little unsolved issue. But yeah, I just kind of had to give it up. You know, when you're writing a book, I'm sure you've experienced this. You kind of have to let it go after a while. You have to kind of give birth. Yeah, you you have to to give birth. (laughs) You have to, you can't just keep working on it because you could really work on a book forever. That's the thing about it. But the one other thing I want to say about the book too, for those of you out there that are always thinking about your relatives that immigrated here and it was something that was interesting to me because I've read a lot of stuff on Italian immigration doing this podcast and Helene read a tremendous amount of stuff about Southern Italy over the 10 years of the span and all the history and everything. But in the book, Helene really paints this really, really vivid picture of the actual boat ride, the actual immigration, the passage, I guess you could say, which to me... I've been looking for something like that because you always hear about the stories of it. I, you know, you look at the manifest and you hear how disgusting it was, really, especially for most of our families that would have been in the lower class compartments, most Italian Americans. And so that was really interesting because, I mean, for me, part of your ancestral research or researching your family roots, there's two parts of it. I always tell people one part is the documentation that's black and white, where they were born, the birth certificates. But the other part is actual the story, like what you had to do, which some of the parts of the book where you said I had to elaborate on things and kind of create some storyline around it. That's the other part of the research that makes it really interesting. That's really understanding your family. Like I've mentioned before in the podcast, when I found my great grandfather's draft card, because he fought here after he came here, he put down self junk dealer as his occupation. And then, you know, my grandma told me how he used to get newspapers that were basically being thrown out and he'd sell them. But that's the side of the story that you're not always going to get from just the, the numbers and the years. But that immigration part of it was always something that I really wanted to try to learn more about because really, I mean, you got to think about it. This is what these people went through to get here. And like Helene said before, if they didn't get here, we wouldn't be here. And it was a really, it's what sounded like just a terrible experience. It was pretty hellish. And I kind of stumbled upon that information. Before I actually found the crime, I went to Ellis Island to do some research. And they have a great library there. So I met with the librarian there. And, you know, I was trying to figure out, is there some record of criminals who might have come over? Whatever. I don't know. I was just moving around in the dark. I didn't know what I was looking for. And he showed me these volumes. It was this congressional report that was put out after the turn of the century about immigration. And it's like, I don't even remember how many, it's like 80 volumes or something. It's insane. It has like all these studies about the numbers of criminals in Southern Italy and the numbers of criminals who were in America after they came over. It's just this incredible breakdown. But then it also has these reports by people who pretended to be immigrants 
and got on the ships in Europe, in Naples, and took notes. <laughs> and for what why, reason? Just to go on? The, just it was to for a congressional uh, oh. investigation into how horrible it was. Oh, wow. And so that's where all that detail came from. It came from these reports that people made up from that time. And all of that, everything, the description of what you got when you got on the ship, you know, they handed you, you know, a fork and a knife. And Yeah, know. no, I mean, it, I was wondering that myself, like, how did she find all this information out? Like, I, Yeah, I hadn't even planned on going into detail on that ship ride. But then when I found all this stuff, I was like, wow, I've never seen this before. I've never seen this in a movie. I've never read this. You know, like what it looks like when they're coming through New York Harbor and they see the Statue of Liberty. How many times have we seen that scene? But what about before? What was it like in Naples when they left? And I found that out too. I did this research in Naples and it was horrible. It was this horrible situation where all these people were leaving, like thousands and thousands of people, you know, basically fleeing this country that wasn't appreciating them and they couldn't get jobs. They couldn't eat. So yeah, that was sort of like the next step. It kind of like after I found the crime, then I went back to these congressional reports and decided I was going to flesh out the rest of Vita's story, how she got here and what it was like to come here. Yeah. I hate to say it, but that part of the, not your book specifically, but just the immigration, the boat ride and everything, there's so many disgusting pieces of it, honestly, but it's kind of like our story. So it's like, you want to read it. And unfortunately, like I was wincing listening to that part of the book, but I was also like, this is awesome because I'm understanding what they came through. It almost makes you feel a little bit more proud of what you've got going on here because... Totally. They really went through hell for us. They sort of sacrificed themselves for us, you know, for their kids and for their grandkids and their great grandkids. They went through the ringer, you know, <laughs> and it's it's all in there. They really did. All right. So we're going to wrap up here again. We're talking to Helene Stepinski. She is the author of Murder in Matera. And it's obviously I think we've teased you enough about it that you'll check it out because trust me, you will really not be able to put it down. It's, it's that great. It's our history, really. All of our stories, not just Helene's. That's how they came here. I mean, um, a lot of our families. So, Helene, do you have a website or where can our listeners find you? Or Yeah, it's HeleneStepinski.com. You can also go on the HarperCollins website and find some information about the book. I think they've got some pictures listed there. They've got like a picture of the file that I found, this 600 page criminal file. So it's kind of cool, you know. If you go to the Harper site, look up Murder in Matera. And there's all kinds of stuff out there. Just put in my name and Murder in Matera. It's all going to pop up. We'll find it. Now, is there, are you able to tell us about anything you might be working on or is there nothing yet? Well, I'm still doing press for this, actually. I'm talking to you today and I'm doing readings. I've got a reading out on Long Island on Friday, tomorrow, um, at Shelter Island. And then I'm doing Montclair in New Jersey in a couple of weeks. I'm doing Boston in a few weeks. So I'm still sort of on the tour trail, you know, and then uh, the paperback's going to be out in March and then there'll be a whole other wave of press. So I'm basically riding this wave. I don't want to, it's like having a kid, you know what I mean? Wanting to give it the best and give it your time. And so I'm really not concentrating on anything else right now, but I am thinking about what might be next. There's that Alaska book, <laughs> you know, and uh, a couple of other things that are um, sort of, well, I'd like to do a book just on Prima Note. I mean, that's I'm like, telling you, when I read that, I told my wife that I'm like, I got to tell you about this part of the book. It's not cool, but I want to just tell you about it because it's really shocking. Yeah, it was shocking. And some people are, they're people who are deniers of it. Historians were like, this never happened. And I'm like, dude, it happened. I went down there. I talked to people. It's like it happened to their grandmother. You know what I mean? It's just because it's not written down somewhere. You know, obviously somebody's not going to write it in their diary. You know what happened with them? Padrone is not going to be documenting it, you know, but 
it's something that really went on. And so that's a possibility. I, there's all kinds of ideas floating around in my head, but I haven't, I haven't committed to anything yet. So we'll see. And I also freelance for the New York times. I write a column for them every two weeks. So I'm always busy with that. So. Well, Helene Stepinski, thank you for spending some time here with us on the Italian American podcast. Your book is wonderful. And I think it's something that we can all hold on to as part of our story. And I just wish you all the best with it. Thank you so much. You're great. <laughs> Now it's time for the Italian-American Stories segment of the episode. This is the part of the show where we try to bring you back to your family gatherings, conversations, or we try to play a recording or a story from one of our listeners or our own relatives, or even read something that a listener submitted. In today's segment, as I mentioned earlier, I speak with Danielle Oteri from Feast on History, where she does Arthur Avenue food tours, among other tours to Italy. She's going to talk a little bit about this really interesting and wonderful Italian enclave known as Arthur Avenue in the Bronx. If you haven't been there, you got to get there. But here's some nice oversight on it from Danielle, who's been doing tours for a while now, but also her family had a fish store on Arthur Avenue some years ago. So here it is. Now I'd like to welcome Danielle Oteri from Feast on History onto the Italian American podcast. Danielle, welcome. Hi, Anthony. Good morning. So Danielle does several things, but one of the things she does is she does food tours on Arthur Avenue in the Bronx. I've had the pleasure of taking one of her tours and we've done an episode as well on Arthur Avenue. And it's such a great place. If you're an Italian American, you haven't been to Arthur Avenue in the Bronx, you have to go. Danielle, why don't you give our listeners a little bit of a background or tell them a little bit about Arthur Avenue for those that aren't familiar with it? Sure. So Arthur Avenue in the Bronx is also the Little Italy in the Bronx. And as many people know it, the real Little Italy in New York City. Mulberry Street is a collection of restaurants, not so terribly authentic anymore. But what we have in the Bronx is something that's completely unique in the United States, let alone in New York, which is this enclave of over a dozen food shops and about as many restaurants which have all been in business between 60 and 100 years. They're all still family-owned and operated. Most people own their buildings, which allows them to be really uh, authentic to their own traditions, to be very stubborn about the way they do things and the quality of everything that they produce or they sell. So you've got this incredible concentration of some of the best food shops outside of Italy on about two blocks in the middle of the Bronx, sort of in between Fordham <laughs> University and the Bronx Zoo. Yeah, it's unlike anything else. And, you know, you'll have things like Italian pastry shops, which are not very cost efficient business to have. And you've got seven of these pastry shops all within a very short distance. Yeah, it really is amazing. And there's a lot of history there. And like Danielle said, the thing that's really interesting about it is because many of them own the buildings because they've been there for so long, it just makes everything very affordable to get this quality of food at the prices that you can get it are really amazing, which is what's great about it. And what's good is that it doesn't, it's not, it's not a museum of Italian culture or Italian food. Everybody that lives in that neighborhood, most of the people that actually live there are very working class and of course, Fordham students as well, you know, college kids don't have a ton of money to spend, but everybody can afford to shop there and eat this really amazing food. So it thrives for all the people that live in that neighborhood. It's not just limited to people with exposure or interest in Italian food. Yeah, absolutely. And wasn't your family on Arthur Avenue? Is that what you said in the tour? Yeah. So my family owned what was originally a dried fish store, a bacala store. 
And it became a butcher shop after World War II. And it was also the set for the Academy Award winning film, Marty. If you have insomnia and you're watching Turner Classic Movies late at night, you've probably seen it. The opening scene was shot in the butcher shop and the main character, Marty, played by Ernest Borgnine, refers to his boss, Mr. O'Terry, my Uncle John, over and over again. And we had the store up until the very early 90s, and it's still there today. It's Vincent's Meat Market, and Peter DeLuca, who owns it now, has more family stories than I do about my own family and still gives me the the family discount, which is very nice. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. So tell us what made you get into, I mean, obviously you had history on Arthur Avenue with your family, but what made you want to start to do these food tours? How'd you get into it? Because you guys have been successful with it. You've been on CNN, you've been on Airbnb. Tell me about it. You know, I started doing it very slowly. I come from the museum world. I've worked for the Metropolitan Museum of Art for 14 years and wanted to start doing something different, something that integrated food, which I think is such an important part of culture. Originally, Melissa Clark from the New York Times was asked to give a food tour to the buyers from Marks and Spencer department store in London. And uh, she didn't really know the area very well. So Through a friend, through Twitter, she found me and I gave these five food buyers from London a tour of the neighborhood. And I thought, hey, you know, I bet you there's a lot of other people that would like to do this. So uh, in cooperation with my husband, actually, I didn't even know my husband at that time, but we met soon after, who is a wine expert. He's a sommelier. We started doing the tours more frequently and eventually it started to become a real business and has become a full-time venture for me in the past year. Yeah, it's amazing what you guys are doing. I think it's great. I mean, listen, Danielle's tours are good for everyone. You don't have to be Italian-American, but obviously as an Italian-American, the tours are just really special because you get to see this side of Arthur Avenue as opposed to just going there and buying a lot of stuff and eating, which you can do. You get to hear a little bit of the history behind it, um, which is really cool. So Danielle, where can our, well, actually, before we get to that, before we get to where they can read, because she has some great articles on Arthur Avenue and the cheeses and the different foods there, but we're doing actually a tour with Danielle uh, for our listeners, which is going to be December 9th, 10 a.m. to about 1230 p.m. And we're calling it the Arthur Avenue Feast of the Seven Fishes Food tour and it's on our website. If you go to italianamericanexperience.com and you click on events, you'll see it there. Or you can go to italianamericanexperience.com forward slash Arthur Avenue, which will direct you to the page Danielle has set up where you can register. We're very excited about it. Dolores and I are super excited and we have had some people register already, but it's a pretty small group of people. It's limited to 15 spots. So we hope you're going to join us. And I'm assuming, Danielle, obviously we're going to be going to some of these fish stores and learning a little bit about this uh, tradition, some of the fish, correct? Oh, yeah. John. Casenza, who has owned Casenza's Fish Market, well, his family has owned it since 1918, is very excited. He's all prepared to give us a whole sort of history of Feast of the Seven Fishes on Arthur Avenue, and we'll have lots of good food for people to taste. I have custom-made shopping bags for everybody that's coming. They're arriving on Saturday, so we're going to have a lot of fun. Wear stretchy pants. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're excited about it. And you can really make a day out of it if you come with family members. I went on the tour with Danielle a month or so ago, and we had the tour, and then we ended up going out to lunch, and I had an amazing lunch. I had some kind of pesto pasta dish that was in an aluminum foil bag with 
cheese melted in it. It was like, it was absolutely to die for. So you can really make it a really great day. And I know that our listeners are interested about connecting with their heritage and helping their other family members do it. So there's really no better way to do that than to bring some of your family members, your kids on a tour and let them experience Arthur Avenue. You'll hear about the history of some of it. And then, like I said, you could have lunch together, have a really nice spread. And it's just kind of a really nice holiday tour. And plus also you can get yourself ready for the holidays. A lot of the stuff there is jarred that's preserved. So if you get it a few weeks in advance, you can get it, or you could just do some of your kind of research on what to get. And then you can come back, uh, you know, Christmas Eve morning or whatever the case may be and do your shopping. So it's a great opportunity. I hope you'll join us. And Danielle, tell our listeners now where they can find you on your website, et cetera. You have articles and all kinds of stuff that's really interesting. Yeah, we have actually two websites. They both will bring you back to the same places eventually, but feastonhistory.com is where we have our Italy tours. And that's where people can find us initially. And then arthuravenuefoodtours.com has our full tour schedule and a ton of articles and recipes from Arthur Avenue. And every recipe that's on there is inspired by something in particular that we buy there that's exceptionally good. So for example, chicken cutlets with the breadcrumbs from Adeo Bakers, because those breadcrumbs are magic. So our recipe tells you, you know, how to make something simple like chicken cutlets, but how it's going to be even better with those ingredients. That's all on the section of um, what to eat and what to buy on Arthur Avenue, which is right there in the top navigation. And again, these are things that you're not going to find. I mean, listen, go to Arthur Avenue anytime. Of course, it's a wonderful trip, but you're not going to know where to get the best breadcrumbs per se. That's why the tour or just the website doing some research can really deepen the experience. And Danielle mentioned briefly that she does Italy tours. It's not just any Italy tour. You have family there that you go to, right, Danielle? We do. My family. So Arthur Avenue comes from my father's side of the family, but my mother's side of the family, it's a closer connection. And my cousins own a beautiful agriturismo, just about 30 uh, minutes east of the Amalfi Coast. And uh, we do food and wine tours based there. And it's a region of Italy that a lot of Italian-Americans, where they have their roots, I think you do as well, right, Anthony? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, Salerno. Chilento region. And we do another wine tour in a region called Irpina, which is if people, you know, their family is from near Avellino, Provinci di Avellino, you're actually from Irpina, which is one of Italy's most prestigious wine-growing regions. So all of our tours are in Campania, as well as Naples. Naples sort of the center of Campania. And it's a, a beautiful region of Italy for anybody to discover, but so many Italian-Americans have their roots there and maybe don't even know that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you ask most people, a lot of them say we're from the region of Naples, which they're not from Naples per se, but they're literally probably an hour away from it or a couple of hours. So it is a great area. It's got a lot of Italian American history that can be traced back to that region. And again, I was there to when I went on my summer trip a few years ago that I wrote my book about was all a lot of it was in that area where my family has their farm. So Danielle Terry, thank you so much for spending some time with us. And you'll get to meet Danielle if you come with us on the food tour December 9th. Again, just go to Italian americanexperience.com either click on events or just go to italianamericanexperience.com forward slash arthur avenue all lowercase no spaces thank you so much danielle thank you So I hope you enjoyed the episode today with Helene and Danielle. I certainly enjoyed interviewing both of them. Really, really interesting. And just, again, anytime you could talk about the heritage or where our families came from, to me, it's really, really important and really, really interesting. So remember to connect with us on social media so you can keep up with all of our shows and other things we have going on. We're on Instagram at Italian American, Twitter at Ital American, and Facebook, the Italian American Podcast. Arrivederci. Arrivederci.